Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. This interview was recorded as part of Dodecanale, a summit organized by the Architecture Foundation that took place this past spring, bringing together the curatorial teams of five upcoming festivals to discuss the changing mandate and potential of the Architecture Biennale model. I was invited to interview the writer and director of the Design Museum, Dayan Sijic, in front of a small audience of summit attendees at Walmer Yard in London. Sijic has been deeply involved in the world of architecture and design, he co-founded the architecture magazine Blueprint in 1983, has edited Domus magazine, directed Glasgow's UK City of Architecture and Design program, and in 2002 curated the 8th Venice Architecture Biennale. In our conversation, we talked about, among other things, the shift in his career from challenging established approaches to design criticism in projects like Blueprint to becoming a key figure himself in London's design establishment. We also focused on his experience in curating the 2002 Venice Architecture Biennale, answering questions from a new guard of curators who are reflecting on the purpose and potential of architecture festivals today. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. of various biennales that are taking place over the next year in Seoul, uh, Sharjah, uh, Lisbon, Oslo, and Chicago. Um, and so the organizers from these events, which include Francisco Sennin and Beth Hughes, Adrian, um, they're from Seoul, uh, Adrian Lahoud, uh, who's organizing the uh, Sharjah Biennale, Eric Lapierre with Lisbon, and Matthew D.L., Maria Smith, and Finn Harper, we're organizing the Oslo Biennale, and then Sepake Angiema, who's organizing the Chicago Biennale. So they've been in conversation, I think, most of the day, hashing it out, really, and working through struggles and frustrations they're having and defining what apparently is a changing mandate and potential of the architecture Biennale today. Um, so in a sense, it kind of feels like a new guard, looking again at what a Biennale is or could be. And then we have um, this conversation is kind of happening under the canopy of that. And ideally, it should be a kind of instrument that you guys can use in um, further fleshing out uh, your thoughts on your respective um, Biennales. So what we're going to do is have a kind of introductory conversation and then open the floor and hopefully have you guys guide the uh, dialogue further uh, to whatever means suits your purposes. Uh, so it really is a kind of freeform discussion here. Um, so, Deanne, I guess just as a way of starting, what I was most curious about is that you started off by studying architecture. 
um, and then quickly realized that you had uh, neither the patience nor the, I, I guess, ability? Competence. Competence, yeah. yeah. Incompetent and impatient. Incompetent and impatient. These words came up again and again in other interviews you've given. Uh, and it's a kind of good humor and self-deprecation, but also this kind of sense of failure um, in approaching a discipline that you then seem to find another way into through journalism. And I just want you to talk a bit about um, that discovery of journalism after architecture school uh, and how you started finding architecture through writing. I guess it wasn't so much a sense of uh, failure, but avoiding failure by doing something that um, you might do better. Um, Clint Eastwood memorably suggests that it's important to know your own limitations. And building was not for me, but um, exploring what buildings mean and what they might mean beyond the people I knew at architecture school always seemed very important. And the idea of actually exploring what architecture can mean to a, a society or a country um, through exploring it by being curious, by asking questions in the way that you do, um, was both a fantastic way to learn more about the subject, but also to try and um, uh, give it relevance for those who are not actually builders themselves. And for me, that's what um, uh, the Biennale that I did in Venice was about. It's what I worked on when I was in Glasgow in the year of architecture and design. And it's what I hope we can do at the Design Museum as well. So th this is um, stuff which is too important just to leave to us. Mm. So out of architecture school, you started working for national papers. You were with the Sunday Times in your early 20s. You were an architecture critic for The Observer. Um, and then at some point you decided, this was actually in 1983, you decided to start a new architecture journal called Blueprint. In fact, that was Peter Murray, uh, the man who gave me my first jobs idea. Mm. Um, it was my idea to call it Blueprint. He wanted to call it High Point. And uh, there was a, a brief week of kind of chill between us, but in the end, he went for Blueprint as well. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the format of Blueprint in those days was um, a deliberately um, calculated attempt to make a magazine that did not look shiny and glossy and uh, uh, was accessible. And um, it was actually modeled on a very short-lived magazine that New in New York called Skyline, which went bankrupt before we'd started our first issue, so not actually such a good model. But again, this was again an attempt to move beyond the professional architectural press and treat design and architecture as something which is about ideas as well as about um, the technology of building. Can you describe a bit like the atmosphere behind the establishment of Blueprint in terms of what your ambitions were at the time, um, what you felt was lacking in architecture culture or journalism that you were trying to provide? Well, this is a moment when um, the Prince of Wales had just started to show an interest in architecture. Uh, it seems an impossibly long time ago, but this was a moment when he was trying to stop um, Peter Palumbo from building Mies van der Rohe's posthumous 12-story glass tower in the centre of London. Um, and he saw this as a, an affront to the London skyline. It's extraordinary to think how insignificant that building would look now when London is under this forest of um, uh, very tall buildings. And um, architecture in this country and other places too, I think, was emerging from a kind of collective nervous breakdown when the kind of post-war utopias that had been promised by the profession were clearly not there and not working. Uh, and there was a sense of mea culpa. Um, the prince had backed people, into the survivors, into pockets of resistance. The Architectural Association was one. Um, and Blueprint saw itself as being another. And I think all new starts, all new publications are about another generation 
who succeed by pushing aside their predecessors and trashing everything that was seen as being um, important and sacred um, and champing another generation. And critics, of course, cynically champion another generation, hoping they will rise with them. And if they're fleet of foot, they'll trash the next generation as well to keep on rising. It's interesting the way you're describing this alliance with critics and architects and the fact that there's a kind of mutual uh, benefit or strategy at play in terms of who belongs or who stays in the canon. Um, and maybe I want to kind of placemark that question to talk about with the uh, curators at the end of our conversation. Um, you've also described Blueprint as like a, as affording the possibility of a reverence uh, in architecture journalism and criticism. Um, and so, I mean, what's always interesting is that people who, who kind of start off pushing against the dominant culture, um, in some cases become the dominant culture. And so there's this trajectory I want to follow now from Blueprint um, to uh, your current role as a director of the Design Museum, um, which is an, in a way kind of establishment uh, entity. Um, and maybe we could just actually jump right to that. What does it mean now to be part of the establishment where at the outset of your career you were kind of in some ways pushing against it? I guess you try and um, grow up without growing old. And that's what the intention of the museum was about. I didn't start the Design Museum. It began more or less the same time as Blueprint. The museum is 30 years old now. Uh, it moved uh, two years ago to a much larger building. We're 10,000 square meters now, and we attract about 650,000 people a year. Whereas in Shad Thames, in our former building, it was rather smaller, and it was about 150,000 um, in a good year. And I suppose it seemed rather important to um, present the subjects that we look at in ways which do mean something to those who, I've said as I've said before, are not in the profession. Um, one of the inspirations, I suppose, is what Nicholas Sirota managed to do by splitting the Tate into Tate Modern and Tate Britain to create a new project um, in the uh, Bankside Power Station in which he managed to shift the perceptions of contemporary art in Britain from being a tabloid joke treated with disdain uh, by the Daily Mail into something which, um, for better or worse, has started to attract very large audiences and created a public place. And I don't think that uh, the museum is on that scale, but I think you know, we're trying to do some of the similar things. I, I always, going back to journalism for a moment, mm -hmm. I always remember um, an editor at the Sunday Times who uh, really got me started by suggesting that I should never use the word fenestration when window was quite good enough. Yeah, and so that point about um, Sirota being one of your, uh, or a kind of person you admire in terms of how he's been able to turn art into something for everybody uh, in a way that you want to do with design, in, insofar as you want to kind of popularize and make accessible the world of design to as wide an audience as possible. Um, I want to talk a little bit about like popularity or what it means to be uh, popular as a museum. And if there is at all any kind of compromise that's made once something is uh, kind of made digestible enough to be consumed by uh, almost anyone. I think that you um, provide a platform which you offer a range of approaches and subject matter. And I think that the key is to have enough sense of authority that those who know a great deal um, can see that you're offering substance rather than mush but you also offer something to those who um, 
well, one of the things that we think about the museum is that um, would, uh, would a family take their kids to see something and face the problem of being asked by their children, what is that that we're looking at, and not be able to answer the question? Another question I had like, along this tangent is uh, where you see the role of scholarship in the museum today? Museums generally. Mm. Um, I think that a museum, I mean, museums have uh, two strands in them. One is um, the curator who sees the artifacts that the museum collects as being precious relics which need to be preserved at all costs and who find um, the possibility of an audience uh, a, a threat. And another kind of curator who sees their job as um, using those artifacts or other artifacts to tell stories with them. And I think that you know, the, the, sh the shift has moved from the former towards the latter, uh, but there's certainly room for both. Let's hold on storytelling for a bit, or narrative. Uh, I've been thinking recently about what it means to tell a good story uh, and draw an audience in, and, and when, in some cases, you're trying to make this nice, you're trying to wrap a nice bow around some ideas that um, looks good from the outside but doesn't always resonate with the experience of that material in real life. Um, do you know what I mean? Has it, it ever happened I, to you, I, I guess? I think, I, think, I think it's fascinating how um, the more uh, history there is of exhibiting architecture and design, the more that some of those um, exhibitions start to resonate long after they're dead. So um, there's a generation of curators who are fascinated by Emilio Ambash's project at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1972, Italy, the New Domestic Landscape, and people now writing research papers about it and PhDs and almost restating re re that exhibition. Or um, Philip Johnson's um, international style at the Museum of Modern Art was also recreated by Terry Riley, who then got Philip Johnson's job. Um, so we, are, you know, we do explore some of those things um, and see the event itself as somehow um, as significant as uh, what it purports to describe. Um, no, there, of course there are no neat solutions and every generation needs its own Bauhaus show mm. in the same way that every generation needs its own Picasso. Um, one can think of some moments when uh, an event has somehow managed to crystallize something. Um, very first architecture biennale in Venice in 1980, the presence of the past, was kind of the, the ignition of postmodernism, one could say. And that wasn't one strand of what postmodernity was about. It was multiple takes on it, but it created something which suddenly seemed to be an event. And I think um, you can't invent a new movement every biennale. Right? Mm. Staying with this uh, topic of biennales in Venice in particular, you, uh, you curated the 2002 Venice Biennale, uh, which was called Next. And uh, broadly speaking, it was asking questions about what architecture will be like in the future. Um, and I want you to talk a bit about, if possible, your experience in organizing that um, Biennale, um, the challenges you came up against, and um, just reflecting on it, um, I guess, in today's design culture. Um, the Biennale I worked on was very much um, a reaction against the previous uh, director, who was Massimiliano Fuxas, whose show was called um, Less Aesthetics, More Ethics, which is quite hard to pronounce when you're in a hurry. Um, and I remember that very well. 
by uh, wandering down the um, Arsenale, the Corderia, and uh, Fuchsas had commissioned a gigantic multi-screen projection um, film by RAI, the Italian TV network, which to be seen had to uh, leave the Corderia in enormous pitch darkness, and he put all the other exhibits on the other side of the Corderia. Um, so I, I, I watched the spectacle of um, Jean Nouvel marching down one side of the Corderia, switching lights on so he could see stuff, with Fuchsas following him, switching lights off again so that he could see his film. Um, always follow someone who um, managed to piss off the staff, actually, which is another thing. Um, so I, I was criticized for doing what they called an Anglo-Saxon uh, arsenale because uh, it was um, about clarity rather than speculation. And the other thing I did was rather than allocate space to individuals, um, I, I was a very hands-on curator and actually chose projects from various architects. And that was a moment in 2002 when there was an avalanche of building everywhere. So there was no longer a gap between thinking, speculation, and construction. Uh, there was so much fresh construction going on that the idea was not so much to show speculations about the future, but projects which were actually underway. So that um, the, was, these were um, things that would actually be seen in two or three years' time uh, as physical realizations. And partly that was a response from my sense that architects are not artists and installations they make in the context of uh, a biennale will never actually reflect the depth of thought and commitment and analysis that an actual project can do. So for me, rather than having speculations in very short time periods with very limited budgets, why not actually use the material that they've spent years thinking about? Mm. I've noticed that in a lot of your writing, you focus on the kind of greatest hits in design. So you've written... What uh, makes you think that? Well, I mean, you've written um, books on people uh, like Norman Foster, um, Ron Arad, uh, Zaha Hadid as well. Um, and what's interesting about that is that you're kind of identifying, I guess, um, people who, in, in a sense, have already arrived in their careers. Um, and I wonder... Well, this is my point about uh, critics kind of make their careers by trashing the previous generation, finding the next one. Mm. And if they are skeptical enough and fast enough and cynical enough, they knife their discoveries and find somebody else. But so do you feel like, I mean, what position are you finding yourself in now in terms of m discovering um, new design? I think it's vitally important, otherwise you're dead. And if you lose your sense of curiosity, then you should stop. And if people can predict what you're going to write or show, then there's no point in doing it because they've already seen it all. So. Uh, I think at the museum it's very important that we use uh, our powers to commission work, like our exhibitions, like our graphic design. We go out of our way to exploit young designers who will do it very, very cheaply. It's funny, I have the word power in all caps in my notes. I don't know what question exactly is associated with that, but I guess it has something to do, <laughs> it has something to do with um, the influence you have in terms of who you decide to uh, laud or bring forward. Um, into the public eye. I, I think it's very important that you don't, as a museum, get identified with one viewpoint, but you actually look at multiple perspectives. Mm. And maybe that's, a, that's a, another point of distinction between the early journalistic work you were doing and the work you do now with the museum. And so far as you must, have, you must feel like you have to restrain yourself at certain points and not editorialize and try as much as possible to uh, present a certain sense of objectivity. 
Is that right, or am I? A museum is not the same as a, a publication, a book, or a magazine. It's a, a three-dimensional physical experience, which is experienced by people as a social experience. So one of the things about the museum is that you walk in in the morning, and if you're lucky, it's full of people um, who may enjoy it or may not enjoy it, but it's actually they're there. It's a reason to switch off their screens and go and do something with each other, which is, I think, again, something that biennales are a reason to do. Mm. Um, What's interesting is it seems like, um, you know, we have architectural writing and magazines in particular on one pole. We have the museum on the other. And then we have like this biennale um, um, kind of culture somewhere in the middle. Because I've, I have the feeling now that um, people organizing uh, architecture uh, festivals and biennales are finding it imperative to have uh, a really explicit agenda in a way that maybe wasn't the case um, earlier on when you were organizing events like um, the 2002 Biennale, which seemed to be more about, as you say, uh, bringing forward uh, work from um, established architects and kind of celebrating that. And, and so I wonder if now is actually a good time to open uh, the floor to questions, or we could also keep that as a, as a question to touch on later. It just seems like, and maybe this has to do with the proliferation of biennials and like architecture exhibition culture, that to kind of set one apart from the other, specific aims need to be um, to be made clear. I mean, to di differentiate one from another. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, can we should we start talking about the agendas in the room right now? Um, is that a useful place to go? Um, people are looking askance and sideways, so maybe I'll continue a little longer, but we'll keep that. Uh, Careful, they want their money back. But uh. <laughs> we'll keep that uh, uh, in our heads. Um, let's talk a bit about your writing, uh, your writing practice, because it seems like the aims for that uh, kind of run in parallel with your work with the Design Museum, insofar as you're writing for as broad an audience as possible. When you're writing, um, do you have a specific kind of audience in mind, or like how do you go about synthesizing uh, your ideas, or how conscious of you are, are you? Well, well it depends on what it is. At the moment, I'm working on a biography of uh, Stalin's uh, court architect, Boris Yofan, and that's a very different proposition from um, trying to write a kind of condensed look at the future of the city. Um, but I, I mean, for me, it's always been a privilege to be able to write while curating, while organizing at the museum. Uh, it's a chance to think, um, to organize your thoughts. Um, to uh, ask yourself questions, um, to lose yourself in the joy of research. You know, it's, it's um, you know, the best thing that I've done in the last month is I actually managed to find someone who's got Yofan's sketchbooks, who lives in London, and spending time with these drawings of someone who I'd always assumed was a kind of Stalinist cipher, but actually beautiful draftsman, um, you know, full of ideas. And I guess what you're seeing there is um, a talent which destroyed itself by having to survive in the background of Stalin's Soviet Union. Mm. So a lot of it just seems to be about the pleasure of discovery. Well, isn't that a fantastic privilege? It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's a pleasure even just to be here speaking with you right now. I mean, I share in that uh, enthusiasm and um, also, to a certain extent, the unknown, which comes with research, because you don't really know um, in the span of a conversation or uh, a research project even what 
you'll stumble on? It is interesting what we feel that we can show to a public and what we feel we can't. Mm. I mean, Justin McGurk, chief curator at the museum, uh, came to me a couple of years ago with a thought about doing something on Yugoslav modernism. And since my family come from ex-Yugoslavia, um, it seemed like the least likely subject you could possibly do an exhibition about in London. And of course, the Museum of Modern Art have done it. And uh, mm. it's a fascinating example of uh, a look back at socialism uh, and its provision of housing at a time when the capitalist world is finding it harder and harder to um, deal with it. Uh, who would have thought that, uh, that MoMA would actually do, do such a thing? I mean, that's interesting, this distinction between what you feel you can share and what is personal for you. Um, could well, you well, I mean, of course, there are, there are financial exigencies. Um, the museum has an operating budget of £10 million a year, of which uh, 175000 comes from the Arts Council of England, and the rest has to be self-generated, mm. uh, which means that we have to have a very active fundraising team. We have to have two shops and a cafe and a restaurant. We have to have an events business, and we have to have some exhibitions which will sell 50 or 60,000 tickets. And that, of course, is a fantastic discipline um, and one which does shape the program. But you try and use um, the more obvious shows, which may or may not be popular. So we're doing a show about Stanley Kubrick, for example, mm. to fund the ones which are not mm. to actually sell those kind of tickets. A friend of mine who worked with me at Blueprint and then went on to start I Magazine once said to me, you know, no magazine that you'll ever want to read will ever sell more than 8,000 copies a month. Um, mm. How sad that is. Uh, and then actually what was rather startling was to find at a time when Zaha Hadid was by no means the establishment, we did a show with her in my early days at Shad Thames, the first design museum, which uh, sold 75,000 tickets. Mm. No book on architecture will ever sell that many copies. And it's interesting how what it is that makes this physical experience, which is what all these biennales that you're working on are about. Why does that actually work in ways which text doesn't? There's one more point that I want to just cover uh, for my own interest. And I think this is widely known that you were part of a group of teenagers that guest edited an issue of the magazine Eyes. So speaking of obscurity, this was a small publication um, in the, uh, this must have been the uh, 70s, mid-70s. Uh, even earlier. Yeah. Earlier than that. Yeah. Um, and um, this specific issue was guest edited by uh, a group of, of, of teenagers, as I said, and um, it was prosecuted for an infamous obscenity trial. Um, and it's, it's interesting to think of you as a teenager guest editing this kind of underground magazine. I wonder if we could... <laughs> Could you bring us back there? Because it seems like it may have been a seminal moment for you in terms of understanding what uh, the counterculture was for or what was possible with words, despite the fact we just talked about their limitations. Yeah. I mean, of course, it was a stunt. Um, the magazine was actually edited by Richard Neville, the Australian uh, who's founded it, and Felix Dennis, um, his uh, marketing manager. And the idea of uh, this underground magazine uh, being edited by school kids um, was um, a theme. Um, actually, control was in the hands of the grown-ups. Mm. Um, but I, I guess um, it, it was a it was a revelatory moment in a different way for me, because it was my when I first realised that there was such a thing as sexism. Mm. Uh, there was a very regrettable cover, um, which at the time I had no understanding of its um, full power to offend. 
uh, and it was only when I got to university afterwards that I realised um, how much it upset, upset people. Uh, I guess it's a relatively sombre note to end on. I do want to give a chance for the room to contribute or ask questions. So if any of the Biennale organizers or other members of the audience want to um, chime in, feel free. I know that you've had a long day. Okay, There's a small go. cash <laughs> prize for the first question. <laughs> mean that we can't necessarily uh, kind of work in a way that always feels comfortable to our kind of ethical impulses. And I guess you've kind of had to navigate working with contributors, whether they're to the museum or to the Venice Biennale or to, um, to a magazine, numerous times and must have encountered all sorts of kind of complicated ethical constraints. So I just kind of wondered, like fundamentally, how you see the, the curator's obligations to the contributor, and whether there are any kind of red lines that for you are really important, uh, or that you would kind of set as a, a kind of ethical framework for your team at the design museum. I suppose um, curating is interesting. Um, are you trying to make something look its best, its most appealing, its most attractive, or are you? showing what you see as the reality. Um, if you're curating a Frank Lloyd Wright show, do you suppress the terrible kitsch at the end? Um, if you're a curator, are you a disc jockey talking over the music in annoying fashion? Or are you providing a platform to show people? On the whole, I think you do want to make people put across themselves as, as, as best you can for them. It would be interesting to hear um, other curators kind of weighing on some of the kind of frustrations that we've all been unloading <laughs> at each other today. I, I guess it's been questions around insufficient funding or insufficient support participants or those kinds of things or um, the challenges of just the logistics around curating a show and bringing participants from all over the world, especially in contexts that they might not necessarily have governmental support or financial support from their own country or industry or in institutions around them. Um, and if, if you are trying to really put on a, a sort of broad and diverse event, you then invariably head into different parts of the world where the, the kind of context doesn't support people at as best as possible, and that what is the responsibility of the curator to then either find means of support or to um, mobilise their own institution that they're speaking for to do so, and, and perhaps you are unable to do so in your role. <laughs> so I guess the question is a sort of sage advice on <laughs> encountering those restrictions and... Well, what I, what I didn't do when I was asked to do the Venice Biennale was really understand how the Byzantine administration of the Biennale and Italy and Venice actually worked. Um, uh, because, you know, since then I've always found it quite handy to work out who are the individuals and the institutions that you need to work with and try to understand what their motivations are, cynical or otherwise. Um, 
and address those, which helps you understand where the money might be hidden and what the the objectives are and um, who are the people that uh, will open doors and those who will try and shut doors in your face. Um, Renzo Piano suggested that um, he would be happy to help with the exhibition in Venice, but be careful of the people of the lagoon. On the surface they smile. Under the water they want to bite your legs off. The worst thing, single worst thing I think, was trying to, um, I mean Peter Zumthor was not the easiest of people to work with to persuade him to kind of deliver a gigantic model um, which was actually made of concrete and involved a barge to ship it across the lagoon. Um, the Venetians paid for it to arrive but they wouldn't pay for it to be shipped back. <laughs> he was pursuing me for months afterwards. It's not my fault, it's not my fault. Speaking from perspective of Sharjah, um, one of the things that's uh, a constant issue within its curation is how do you begin to involve people doing work uh, without necessarily um, having access to the networks of kind of cultural production that exists within the region because they have, let's say, um, or they, there's certain obstacles in terms of um, infrastructure that they allow. And so it's curious within the biennial, obviously, it's a process and it's bound to fail to some extent insofar as it's ambitious. But from the perspective of a museum or an institution that's more permanent, which has, say, um, a different stake or a different relationship to the discipline, how far do you look to engage with those different alternatives? Well, they are, they are very different things. I mean, a museum yeah. is in some ways more like a theatre, which has seasons of programming um, and has chances to, well for us in our particular museum we have uh, three galleries operating so at any one time there's a different balance of um, uh, subject matter and, and approach whereas a Biennale is, is it's one firework display and it's, it's often many people's attempts to foreground themselves whereas a museum has more scope to kind of make a uh, a mediated argument and you have probably a longer schedule too and we try and plan three years in advance which gives you chance to research and to shape and to publish um, whereas I've don't ever come across a Biennale which gives you more than a year to to work on uh, and that is a very different thing um, but your point about Sharjah is that it's actually developing a new form in a part of the world which doesn't have these is this a different level of infrastructure or yeah. a different development? But I was wondering specifically from the perspective of design museum, uh, what is it uh, in the city like in terms of what are you programming or how do you approach programming? Is there a balance? Well, we have how one. Yeah. Okay, so so we have one strand which is trying to look at um, allowing designers or architects to think in public. So we we have a strand of exhibitions which aren't so much about their own work, but about so for example. Um, Heli Ongarius, the Dutch designer, uh, did a project for us which was about um, living colour. So it's not about her work, but she thought about how colour impacts, uh, how colour is affected by uh, industrialization and standardisation. Uh, we have a project on right now, which is uh, with David Ajay, which is, again, not so much about his own work, but about the idea of memorial making and monuments. So that's a strand which I, I hope is a chance to give people a think chance to reflect and, and think about what their work is. But we also have a, a, a rather more um, 
because uh, there's something quite tribal about architecture and design, and design in itself has many strands in it. And what we're trying to do is provide a platform which all those tribes feel at home. So how do you do that? It's um, it's about bigger themes and subjects. So Justin McGurk, uh, our chief curator, did two shows like that. He started off with, when we opened the museum, he did a show called Fear and Love, which was asking 12 people around the world to reflect on the things that design is doing to us and things that we don't actually particularly feel good about. Um, and you know, that was, I think, a complex but very useful exercise. And it actually crossed these disciplines. And then the next one in that series was about California, not the generation of Charles and Raheem's, but you know, why it's become the center of the world. Uh, and I think these are all types of exhibition which can provide some sort of context and synthesis for the ideas that are shaping our disciplines, rather than specifically about a traditional architectural exhibition. There really wasn't. There really wasn't the time. No. <laughs> you know, it was the mm -hmm. most intense uh, six months I think I've ever had. Actually, we should say um, uh, say your names before uh, as you ask the question, just for reference. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just thinking as I edit this, I won't know what's your name. <laughs> um, my name is Sophie. I'm near Alberta, a part of Edit, and we're participating in Oslo. And then before that, we had uh, um, Adrian Lahoud. No, Adrian. <laughs> oh, sorry. Adrian's not here. He's in Moad. Adrian's not here. Okay. So it's Moad. Moad. Okay. Yeah, Moad is not here. Cool. And then before Moad's comment, we had um, Finn Harper. Beth. Oh, sorry, Beth. Security from Seoul. Okay. And Finn. Right, okay. Um, Because I missed all the conversation that happened today, uh, I don't know if I'm retreading old ground here, um, but I thought it's worth like putting out the uh, assumptions I have about biennials or biennales, however we pronounce that. Yeah. Um, I love the way you called them banales. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never actually been to an architecture biennale. Would you? Would I? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, depending on how this conversation ends, maybe <laughs> I could be swayed. <laughs> but um, well, if you're not going to go, I mean, who is, who is <laughs> going to go? Um, and I think I'm not—I'm not an overly cynical person, but um, my feeling is that. Can I make a plea for using the word cynical correctly? <laughs> skeptical is what you are, and skeptical is a positive thing. Cynical mm. is what Donald Trump is. Oh no. But I think I'm a little bit cynical, but not in the Trumpian <laughs> sense, whatever that means. And, and here's why. Um, to me, I think biennales have become, or maybe always were, um, a kind of trade show or a pageant that was a vehicle for promoting uh, the careers of up-and-coming architects and designers. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think probably the most exciting part of a good biennale might be the fact that when it opens, Everyone makes themselves beautiful, and they network, and it's lovely. Um, <laughs> that's my cynicism. Um, no, that's your skepticism. Okay, because it's not actually if you like were, that. If you were cynical, you'd say they were fantastic things in the hope of being invited to open one. 
Okay. Well, okay. Well, hopefully I'm not invited to one. <laughs> um, but, but do you know what I mean? And is this something that, um, as organizers of Biennales to Come, uh, you're grappling with? Uh, do you share that view uh, or not? I'm kind of putting this out to the floor. So, I mean, um, prior to working on the Chicago Architecture Biennial, um, I've been involved much more in the education and public programme. So for a while, there is this sort of sense of um, the, the curators sort of, you know, um, having a sense of relief maybe at the opening. Um, for me, the work has only just begun. So I think with the Chicago Architecture Biennial, and I think this has been happening with other biennials too, and obviously not just architecture ones. Um, there is a sense of how do you extend the dialogue beyond the frame of the exhibition, um, to see the exhibition only as an aspect or a part of a, a larger conversation, um, and, and one in which maybe creates a space or a platform for necessary dialogue between um, professions. Mm. Um, so, I mean, regardless of your scepticism or cynicism or, uh, or lack of invitations, I'm inviting you to Chicago. <laughs> um, I do think they're really important spaces uh, in order to create that um, dialogue that can happen between different geographies. Um, and I think a moment like we're having today is quite a rare one because... Um, I feel that often um, biennials might feel that they're in competition with each other rather than um, gathering uh, a mass of, um, of, uh, of topics that actually need to be discussed on a wider um, scale. So, yeah, thanks to Phineas for his foresight mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in, 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 in organising this conversation between yeah, four or five biennials which are all going to operate within a very short space of each other. And actually what's been quite interesting today is also just sort of seeing, um, I mean, the fact that we haven't previously really spoken about um, our kind of curatorial concepts. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of overlapping, I think, themes and ideas. And um, I guess there's still a question to be had, which is much more in relation to um, what's the potential of that? What's the potential of having four or five different biennials which are happening in very, vastly very different contexts and geographies, um, territories and cities around the world? Um, what does that add to the conversation of architecture? Um, and what does it bring locally as well? Mm. So, yeah. And this is uh, Sapaki and Guillermo speaking. Yeah, also I need to say... I'm co-curating the biennial <laughs> in Paolo, Chicago. Yeah, with Paolo Tavares and Yasomi Omelu, who's the artistic director. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've previously done education and outreach for Documenta and Manifesta, is that right? Um, what What do you anticipate bringing from those experiences into Chicago? Um, I think some of the sorry, um, some of the um, yeah, so the, there is this element where I guess for me it's important as a curator not just to, you know, although I would love to, but not just to end the contract at the, at the exhibition opening, but seeing that as a point in the trajectory of our research and understanding of what we're trying to um, form, to formulate. Because I, I also think that it's, um, 
you know, there is a quite a finite element of, of exhibition that it should, you know, you should have everything very well um, concluded, but I actually feel that that should be the beginning uh, of conversation and not necessarily the end of it. And so I'm hoping that that element of um, looking at the exhibition education and public programme as entities which can you know, fold, fold into each other and unfold maybe unexpected um, outcomes uh, is, yeah, is something to kind of, you know, um, be excited about as opposed to just sort of, um, you know, just being really happy that it's done. <laughs> There's something for people to look at and, uh, and that you hope the critics will be, will be kind. Mm. This feels like a good place to end, I think. So I just want to thank everyone for participating and Diane, uh, especially for uh, coming here and talking today um, and Finn for organizing this whole thing. Um, Impresario extraordinaire. So thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Dan Sedjic, and a special thanks to Finn Harper at the Architecture Foundation. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.